Let's give our attention to our Lord in prayer uh, as we endeavor this morning uh, to look once again in our confession of faith into the second chapter, which deals with God himself, uh, what we can call, what we know as, as theology proper, looking at, at who God is, how he has revealed himself and described himself and made himself known to us in the scriptures. And, and we, we ought to believe that in every place of Scripture, in every topic covered in Scripture, we need the Spirit's help. We need the Spirit's illuminating work in us for us to understand and comprehend. But how much more ought we to be aware of our insufficiency when, we're, when we, we seek to, to, to lay our hands upon, so to speak, something as mysterious and inco- incomprehensible as the doctrine of God? Uh, so let's humble ourselves before Him and seek his help as we endeavor to, to speak about these things. Our Father and our God, what, what a mercy you have shown to us, what a kindness you have shown to us by, by revealing yourself to sinful men. We thank you that we know from the scriptures that you exist and have always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one God. We rejoice in the great comfort that we have from your word and and knowing that we have a Father who has loved us from eternity, a Son which gave himself for us, a Spirit which applies that work of atoning redemption to us. Father, will you grant to us the humility to handle these matters faithfully, carefully, and in a spirit of worship and awe before you. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit, uh, to understand that which you've given to us, and not to go beyond what you have made known to us, not, not to entertain speculations and imaginations and doctrines of men, but instead to fix our eyes upon our triune God as you've made yourself known. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin in the 11th chapter of Romans. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at the last few verses. Paul is concluding here the the theological, uh, the the exegetical work of, of his letter to the Roman church. Romans 12 begins with, therefore, and he, he turns in a sense to application. But having wrestled with the... the the glorious, eternal, mysterious power of the gospel being made known to men. Paul, as it were, just just in a sense breaks out in exaltation here as he ponders the things that he has written. And in Romans 11, verse 33, we read this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We were here last week. Uh, we looked uh, at, at, for a few moments at Exodus and looked at the, 
the narrative account of the burning bush and, and Moses hearing the very voice of God and Moses asking, as God has commanded him, you go to the people, you go to my people and tell them, I'm going to deliver them from Pharaoh and from Egypt. And Moses said, the people are going to ask me, who sent me? Who, who should I say sent me? And, and you know the answer. God said, I am. I am. And God is, was communicating more than just a word to describe himself. He was, he was just communicating something more than just a name. He was communicating his essence. I am. I always am. Well, here we read in Romans 11... For from him and through him and to him are, it's the same to be word, all things. So with God, how is it that God comes to be? He didn't come to be. He always to be. Stretching the limits of language, aren't we? And yet with humanity, with every creature, with everything that we can touch and observe and experience, even those things that are intangible, immaterial, time itself is from God. Those things are because of the work of God. Augustine, or Augustine, I guess depends on where, what part of the country you're from, speaking of this high holy mystery of God, he says, if you understood him it would not be God. Think about that. If you understood it, it's not God you've understood. Because God is incomprehensible. In other words, if you get to the point where you think you have comprehended God as he has made himself known to us, if, if you feel like you've comprehended the mystery of the Trinity, if, if you've comprehended God's own self-revelation, it's not God you've comprehended. It's your own idea of God that you've comprehended. That, that's evidence that, that we have, in fact, reduced God to something manageable. Uh, James Dolezal, uh, in his, his, his very helpful book, if, if you have not read it, I encourage you to gird up your loins, um, put your helmet on, do whatever you need to do, and, and read his book called All That Is in God. Uh, it, it's a challenging work. But it's a, it's a very, very helpful and devotionally encouraging one. In that book, he quotes from Thomas Aquinas, something in, in a similar vein as what we saw from Augustine. He said, we may touch the knowledge of God, but we may not grasp it. See, we, we, can, we can get just this close to what God has revealed about himself, but we can't grasp it. I'm going to read here from chapter 2 once again, paragraphs 1, and I'm going to read paragraphs 1 and 2. And we, we, we looked last week at the identity of God. How has God identified himself in the scriptures? What's the, what's the essence of God as he's made himself known? And we saw that he is a most pure spirit, that he is the true God, the only God, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto. And then... We see what follows here, and I'm going to read this in just a moment, are a number of his, what we could call his attributes. Things that we can define from Scripture, but what I want to look at today is how these things relate together. 
and how we ought to understand his attributes, because there's a danger because of our, our finitude, because of the limitations of our humanity. We can read a list of God's attributes and think these are disparate individual descriptions of God in isolation from one another. And I'm going to explain what that means. But we're going to approach what, what is known historically as the doctrine of divine simplicity. We confess that God is simple. If you haven't heard that term, that may already surprise you. God is simple. And that might even seem blasphemous at first blush. But what we ought to, be, to begin to, to, to grasp is that the doctrine of divine simplicity is foundational. It's not blasphemy, it's the opposite. It's necessary, it's foundational. Now, I'll define what we mean here in just a moment. Let's read the first and second paragraphs of our confession so that we can orient ourselves to the exact words that, um, that Orthodox Christians, not just Reformed Christians, but Orthodox Christians of all stripes, have confessed about this God. Paragraph 1 reads this way, The Lord our God is but one, only, living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit. And here's a key phrase, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at the one word today, parts. Without body, parts, or passions. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. We have here in paragraph 1 a number of, of foundational statements, and this follows a pattern that we see repeated throughout our confession in multiple places, where the first paragraph in a chapter, in a sense, sets the table for us, introduces concepts and terms that will be fleshed out more fully throughout the rest of the, the chapter, if not the whole confession. And, and we find something very similar here. We, we, we find, as we saw last week, that God is self-existent. He is the true God. He is the only God. He, his subsistence is in and of himself alone. Then if you look at how paragraph 2 begins, God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself, all-sufficient. See, it's expanding on that same concept. And, and if you want the theological term, it's his aseity. It's his aseity, meaning God is not, he is all-self-sufficient. He is not dependent upon his creation. He is not dependent upon the creature. He is not dependent upon you or me or, or all of us together. God is in no way contingent or dependent upon man or any aspect of his creation. 
he is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. See, God doesn't receive anything. Just as the sun receives, how much light does the sun receive from the moon? Zero, right? The, the, the moon is merely a reflection of the light of the sun. The moon gives off no light of its own. And, and that analogy fails relatively quickly because even the moon and the sun are still finite. And, and yet, we have some just some way for us to conceive of the fact that, that whatever, God, whatever glory is manifested by God is not dependent upon his creature. So even things, when we use phrases like, this glorifies God, or this brings glory to God, it's not wrong to say that, but we need to, we need to understand that when, to whatever degree we bring glory to God, it is his own glory being manifested in us. It doesn't originate with us. There's nothing in us that God receives. Continuing on, he is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And if you have a copy of the confession that has the scriptural footnotes, you'll note there that the footnote is Romans 11, 34 to 36. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto their creator, creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So see, what's happening in chapter or paragraph 2 is, is a working out and a further explanation of what was already asserted in paragraph 1, that God exists in and of himself, whose subsistence is in and of himself. And that, that, that phrase is then magnified in paragraph 2, and spelled out that he is the fountain of all being, from whom, through whom, and to whom exist all things. And, and so what we find is, based on this, this statement, whose subsistence is in and of himself, and then the expansion of that in paragraph 2, we have this, this tremendous contrast between the creature and the creator, don't we? We have set before us, in, in, in ways that, words that we can we can pronounce, and some of them we could even spell. But we can't fully comprehend the full weight that those words are intended to carry because of the, 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 the limits of our own human intellect, our own human capacity. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for... You created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. God is the author of any and every created thing. Anything outside of God is only there because of God. Our humanity 
is, is given to us. It's sustained as a gift according to the goodness and the power and the wisdom and the mercy of God alone. And, and, and you, you, you contemplate, we ought to contemplate, just the, the bare hubris of humanity, to, to, as, as they did at the Tower of Babel, to, us, to assume we can do these things in our own name, in our own image, and for our own glory. And, and God will not have anyone compete with him. He will not have anyone rival him. But even when we use the terms, have you ever thought about the term human being? Not as Hank the Cowdog would say, human being, but human being. Uh, it's a statement of, of our essence, our, our, our being, our existing. And, and what's the origins of that? Our, our, our being, our, our essence, our humanity exists from outside of ourself. We didn't create ourselves. We are not self-existent. We, we were made by God and for God and to God. We are created. We are fundamentally insufficient for our own existence. And of course, if you've ever been around an infant, it's manifestly clear. I mean, an infant is, a human infant is born helpless. Some in the animal kingdom are, are born where they can immediately stand up and eat grass and forage and, and provide for themselves in some way. Human beings are not that way. And I think part of that is God's wisdom and design to, to press upon us constantly how helpless we really are. But see, this is not so with God. And here's this fundamental creature and creator distinction. Everything that we have, everything we are as human beings is dependent upon God, and yet everything in God is not dependent upon anything else. God makes himself, or God, not, God does not make himself to exist. God didn't create himself. God doesn't will himself into being. Nothing causes God to be. God is infinite in his being and perfection, but not because he caused himself to be. This is getting confusing already, isn't it? God doesn't cause himself to be. He is. He is the great I am. God is, is not in the process of becoming. He is. And see, we speak about humanity regularly, don't we, in, in, in the language of becoming. You know, a, an infant is becoming a toddler is becoming an older child, is becoming a teenager, is becoming a young, young adult, and, and then all the way to the end. We're becoming senior citizens, and we're becoming you know, geriatrics, and whatever. We are, we are always in a state of change. But it is not so with God. God just is. So now let's return to this statement in paragraph 1 that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body. That, that one's easy enough, isn't it? This is one of the, the questions in the children's catechism. Does God have a body like men? Children, what's the answer? No. God does not have a body like men. Which is, again, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a restatement or a further clarification of he's a most pure spirit, invisible. He doesn't have a body. Well, already, aren't we pushing against some of the, the Hollywood portrayals of God? 
or even some of the so-called Christian films that portray God as somehow material. Our God does not have a body. He does not have parts. This is a, a vital statement when we, when we seek to understand his attributes. And we see the lists of those. Uh, he is immortal, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, so on. Uh, he is infinite, infallible, independent of the creature. All of those, we would say, are, are attributes, and many others are attributes of God. They are, they are ways for us to describe things that we know to be true about God from the Scriptures. The difficulty is if we describe our... Uh, well, let me back up a minute. Among the attributes of God, we can categorize them in very general ways as communicable and incommunicable. Have you heard those terms? Communicable attributes. Who, who, who can tell me what a communicable attribute is? Matthew? Um, not quite. It can be shared. Communicable. I mean, you think about a, you know... We, we, we learned that word communicable a lot in the COVID era, right? <laughs> Things are shareable. It's communicable, um, often in a bad way. But there are attributes of God that are shareable, meaning we can find those attributes or a reflection of those attributes in man. Let's think about some examples of communicable attributes of God. What's, what's, what are some communicable attributes of God? His love, his kindness. What else? His mercy, anger. These are things that we can find reflections of these in humanity, right? And, and the list would go beyond that, but there are communicable attributes. There are other things that are not, that are incommunicable, meaning they're not shared with mankind, like his infinity, his omniscience, meaning he knows all things, his omnipresence, meaning he, he exists outside of time and space. He is not bounded in any way. When we think about something that's a communicable attribute, let's say kindness. Is, is, is kindness something that in a legitimate way a human being can demonstrate? Is that it, it, Can we legitimately, truthfully say that a man or a woman can, can have the attribute of kindness? Sure, absolutely we can, and we ought to. But can we say that kindness is the same thing as that human being? No. The attribute is distinct from the person. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, because, one, there's more to me than just my kindness. My family can confirm that. Because there are times when I'm not kind. There are times when I'm not loving, or merciful. There are times when I don't display those things. And so we cannot make an, an equality, or an, an, we cannot make the attribute equivalent to the person. But when we come to God, is God's love, for example, distinguished from his essence? Is it distinguished from his person? No. John says God is love. God, God doesn't have love. He doesn't merely display love. He doesn't possess love. 
He doesn't show love. He is love. Love is equal to his essence. And the same with all of his attributes. Now, if your mind hasn't turned to jello yet, track along with this. Simplicity, divine simplicity. This is what this doctrine entails. It's what it, what it means. Is God is simple means he's not composed of various parts. We don't, we, we don't think of God like a puzzle where we've, we've got the, the corners of mercy and love and kindness and grace, and then we fill in the rest of it with his anger and his wisdom and his jealousy and his immortality. We don't put all those together and make a composite picture of God. Because what happens if you pull one of those puzzle pieces out? You don't have God anymore. So when we think about composition, we think about things that are composed. It's a summation of parts. And you've even heard the Germans have a phrase or a word, gestalt, that the sum of the parts is greater than its whole. Or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so if we think of God this way, we've erred. If we think of God, his, his love or his mercy or his wrath or his anger or his kindness as, as distinct features of God or, or distinct attributes of God in isolation from his essence, we've not been faithful to how God has revealed himself in his word. So divine simplicity flows from a scriptural meditation upon the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God. Because God, if God is self-sufficient, and if God is self-existent, as he says that he is, then necessarily he cannot be composed of these various parts put together. As human beings, we are, comp- we are a composition. We are composed of a lot of different things, aren't we? Uh, even even our, our essential nature as a human being is, has two, two parts. We have a material part and an immaterial part. What Paul refers to as the inner man and the outer man. The outer man's wasting away. The inner man is, is being sanctified. Our body and our soul. We could use various words to describe the same reality, but we are composed of those two parts. Well, then we can break that down even further, right? Our bodies are composed of a lot of parts. We could all sing a little song. Our you know, ankle bones connected to the knee bone and all, all that. We, we're composed of parts. And our temptation at various points when we think about and we meditate upon the doctrine of God is to reason from our own selves back up to God and then impose upon him our lack of simplicity. See, we are not simple creatures. And we, we, again, if you just, just ask a man on the street, which is simple, man or God? They would say, well, compared to God, man is quite simple. But that's not what the term means. Simple means not composed. It, doesn't, it means it's not variegated. It, it's, not, it's not multifaceted. It's a unified whole, an inseparable whole. So for, for us to confess that God does not have parts, what we're saying is God is indivisible. He's not, com- he's not uh, combined together multiple realities, losing one of which would make him no longer God. The old Puritan, Stephen Charnock, summarizes it like this. He says, God is the most simple being, for that which is first in nature, having nothing beyond it, cannot by any means be thought to be compounded or composed. For whatsoever is so, meaning composed, 
depends upon the parts whereof it is compounded, and so is not the first being. Now God, being infinitely simple, hath nothing in himself which is not himself, and therefore cannot will, will any change in himself, he being his own essence and existence. Now we could take something that's we could say is maybe relatively simple. I have a water bottle here. Um, and even though this is not as complex as, say, a watch, it still is not a simple thing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's made out of plastic, and then we could break down the plastic further. If you, you chemistry folks, you could break this down and tell me all the things that are in it and words that I couldn't pronunciate. And then it's got a label on it with ink and, and different colors, and then it has a, a cap, and then, of course, there's water that has its own composition. So even something that we would look at and say, well, this is relatively simple, and yet it's still complex. It's composed of parts. Now, if I, if I took the label off of this, is it still a bottle? No. Yeah. I took the water out of it. It's still, it's still a bottle. So there's nothing essential to its nature with any of the, 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 the parts. But there comes a point when its being, its, its essential nature as a water bottle would cease. If I poured the water out and put something else in here instead, it wouldn't be a water bottle anymore. It would be whatever else I put in it. And so its essential nature is, is, is composed. It's dependent upon the parts. That is not so with God. So if we deny divine simplicity, necessarily what we've done is we've denied the clear scriptural revelation regarding God's essential being, his essential nature. You know, we can, we can love, as human beings, we can love or not love. Love is not identical to our nature. But that is not so with God. But do, you, do you see the temptation to reason from humanity up to God? Reason from the creature towards the creator and, and in a sense, pull him down from heaven and, and recast him in our own image? With God, every attribute of God is identical with his nature. God is love. A composite whole is built up out of things that are less than the whole. So in the water bottle, is, is the label, does it constitute a water bottle? No, the cap doesn't constitute a water bottle. It is dependent upon all these features. The philosophers would call them accidents. All these accidents coming together to make a, a unified whole. But that is not so with God. Our, our essence is, 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 is humanity, it's human, but our existence is not given by our humanity. Our essence is given to our humanity. And it's not the same thing. And so all creatures have a distinction between existence and being. There's a Dolezal refers to this as, as the whatness of a thing. What is it? The whatness of it is distinct from its being, its essential nature, its essential properties. And all created things depend upon something outside of themselves for their being. But again, we've come back to this with, with God. He is self-existent. He is, he is not dependent upon his creation or his creatures in any way. God is not the consequence of parts being unified together in which we risk losing the whole because one part is lost. 
God is not those, the consequence of, of parts being joined together. And, and if, so if God is not simple, then God would be dependent upon the parts and upon some composer of those parts to possess the nature and existence that he does. And that's really crucial for us. Let's think about, again, just something as, as, as mundane as a water bottle. Its existence depends upon what? What's the existence of this water bottle dependent upon? Humanity. I mean, somebody had to make it. Uh, Someone had to design it. Someone had to determine how much plastic, what what color ink, what kind of, what what needed to go in it, uh, its shape, its size, all of its properties had to be determined by someone designed composed, crafted, manufactured, and then ultimately distributed, or I wouldn't be able to hold it. But it is not so with God. Anything that is composed, anything that is composite, anything that has multiple parts, you know this, if you ever bought anything from Ikea, you know this really well. The whole depends upon someone to put it together, doesn't it? You go buy a bookshelf. This is great. We're going to have a bookshelf. You get home and realize, whew, I'm not going to have a bookshelf today. Because there's too many parts. And it requires a composer to put those parts together. So if God is composed in any way, if God is is the summation, if he is the sum total in any way of his various attributes then he can't be God because it would depend, be dependent upon someone to compose those things, someone to put them together. I know this is heady, but does it, does it make sense? Um, and, it, and it becomes, as we work through uh, over the next couple of weeks and, and begin to look at the Trinity as well, these things become the foundation upon which we, we build our the, the language that we use to describe God. And and what historically this doctrine of divine simplicity was never in doubt. And it didn't matter whether you were Baptist or Presbyterian or Congregational or even Roman Catholic, Anglican. Uh, It didn't matter. Everyone confessed the same thing regarding God's simplicity until about the middle of the 19th century and the rise of liberalism and other uh, factors that scholars began to get cute, get creative. Well, maybe we ought to re-look at this. Um, Much of what was articulated even in the early church in the first few centuries was even built upon Jewish thought. Um, Even the Old Testament reveals these things about God. Herman Bovink, in his Systematic Theology, uh, describes simplicity this way. It's a little bit longer quote, but bear with it. The unity of simplicity insists that God is not only truthful and righteous, loving and wise, but is in fact the truth, the righteousness, the love, and the wisdom. And he cites here Jeremiah 10.10, John 1, um, and John 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 John 1, 
and 1 John 4. On account of its absolute perfection, every attribute of God is identical with his essence. So it's, it's not wrong for us to speak of God's attributes in terms of his anger or his love or his kindness or his omnipotence. I mean, God has, has, has condescended to us by way of language to help us begin to, to, to touch upon, we can't grasp, but to touch the doctrine of God. But we need to understand that to, if, if we're trying to make hard separations and trying to find a conflict, for example, in our mind between God's mercy and his wrath, there is no conflict. Because God is wrath. God is mercy. The medieval scholastics would, would use the phrase that God is pure act. That everything in God is God. All that is in God is God. That's just where the title of Dr. Dolezal's book came from. All that is in God is God. So Bavink continues, on account of its absolute perfection, every attribute of God is identical with his essence. Although, sometimes opposed on philosophical grounds, the doctrine of divine simplicity is of great importance for our understanding of God. If God is in any sense composite, then it is impossible to maintain the perfection of his oneness, his independence, and his immutability. You see, if, if God is composed of parts, then he can't be immutable. He, he can't be self-existent. He cannot be truly one. So again, this is an expansion upon what we saw in paragraph 1 in our confession. The Lord our God is but one, only living and true God. Our God is not schizophrenic. He doesn't have DID. He is simple. So continuing the quote from Bob Inc., I'm breaking it up a little bit. Simplicity is not a philosophical abstraction, but the end result of ascribing to God all the perfections of creatures to the ultimate divine degree. It is necessary as a way of affirming that God has a distinct and infinite life of his own within himself. To oppose the doctrine of divine simplicity on the grounds that it is a metaphysical abstraction and inconsistent with the doctrine of the Trinity is to misunderstand the doctrine and the intention behind its affirmation. The term simple is not an antonym of twofold or threefold, but of composite. God is not composed of three persons, nor is each person composed of the being and personal attributes of that person, but the one uncompounded, simple being of God exists in three persons. Do you see, if, if we don't begin to wrap our minds around, humanly speaking, this doctrine of divine simplicity, when we get to the Trinity, we're going to be on shaky ground, aren't we? And so see, if, if we untether ourselves from this ancient doctrine and say, well, either we reject divine simplicity or eh, we just don't think it's that important. We, we've lost our moorings. We've lost our foundation. 
for the doctrine of the Trinity. Because God is not composed. He is not one part Holy Spirit plus one part Son plus one part Father making one God. He doesn't have parts. He's not divisible in that way. And so, if we go back now to paragraph paragraphs 1 and 2, I'm not going to reread them, but, but think through, and even on your own, I encourage you to meditate upon this. I mean, even reading these things devotionally could be a great encouragement to your soul. To think about a God who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite. See, what, what Bob Inc. says here is um, simplicity is not a philosophical abstraction, but the end result of ascribing to God all the perfections of creatures to the ultimate divine degree. That's why the confession uses language like most holy, most merciful, most righteous. Not because God simply excels us in those things, but he is the infinite expression and the infinite source of love, of mercy, of kindness. Because that's who God is. These are not features of God, they are and they are not individual aspects of God. We may refer to them as his attributes, and that's, that's not wrong to do so, uh, as long as we bear in mind that these, these are not dividing God up into a jigsaw puzzle, and we put him back together with these various attributes. As we sit around a table thinking, talking about theology, and we say, well, I have, I have mercy and goodness. Oh, good, I've got wrath and, and, and kindness. Let's, let's put our, our pieces together and we'll form God together. No, God is one. If God were composed of parts, or composed of his attributes, he would be dependent on something outside of himself to provide that unity. He would be dependent upon something outside of himself, for example, to hold together his infinite, holy, white-hot wrath, and his infinite, holy deep well of mercy. He would, something outside of God would have to hold those things together if they were just various parts or attributes or features of God. God does not depend on anything for his godness, to make up a word. There's nothing, God is not dependent in any way. God is not ho- waiting for his creatures to, to, to assemble him together. As creatures, we are not equal to our attributes. We are not equal to our power, our knowledge. We are constantly becoming. You know, we might be becoming wise. We might be becoming powerful. We might be becoming knowledgeable. But that is not so with God. God is infinitely, purely, most pure act with respect to all of these things that we describe as attributes. Um, Dolezal simply puts it this way, God does not depend upon anything not God in order to be God. And so some of these things, again, can, can strike us as sort of philosophical abstractions, to use Bobbing's language. But, but they're not. These are not derived from uh, an outside school of thought and then imposed upon the Scriptures. And, and you'll hear those accusations made. These are necessarily derived from the ways in which the Scriptures describe God and His Godness. I, I, I'll close with that um, and, and leave you with that, uh, pun intended, that simple thought, that unified thought.
But God is. God is not the sum total of those things which we use to describe Him. God is most pure act. He, he is those things. And unlike us, uh, we, we cannot break Him into component parts, nor is He dependent upon anyone to hold Him together. All of this rests upon His self-identity, His self-dependence, His self-sufficiency. Um, we as creatures will at many points be tempted to recast, reshape God in our own image. And we must flee that temptation, saints, for our own benefit, for our own good. Uh, but certainly, um, in obedience to the first and second and third commandments, uh, we must not behold God as he is not, or make him in our own image, but to exalt his name as he truly is. And confess. We get to the point where we put our hand over our mouth as Job did and said, I'm, I'm, I'm through speaking now. Uh, I've, I've exhausted all that I can say about God. I cannot comprehend it, but I can, I can speak true words with respect to what God has said about himself. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified to ask. Are there questions? <laughs> Matthew. Well, it is, it is the case that we, we will need words not contained in Scripture to describe the doctrines that are contained in Scripture. For example, Trinity, um, simplicity, aseity. Uh, we, we will often need a word to describe the concept that is there. But the other thing that we, with respect to God is not... God is not relational uh, if he is not like us, um, which, which is a, a flawed assumption to begin with. But that kind of premise ultimately undermines the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, where where, where we, we read, for example, in, in Hebrews, that we now have a perfect high priest who is like us in every way, except without sin. Our Lord Jesus took on our human nature. He, he assumed that human nature. He assumed both body and soul. It's not that he took on a human body, but he had a divine soul. He had a human body and soul. He took on our nature. 
and, and therefore, and, 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 in, and in that capacity, according to his humanity, the writer of Hebrews also said, he learned obedience by distress and persecution. That he learned obedience. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a mind-boggling thing to think about. But in terms of God's relatability to his creatures, we ought to look to the incarnation, uh, first and foremost, to a great high priest who has borne our sorrows, who is familiar with our weaknesses, who knows our frame experientially. And, and we look to him, and we praise God for that, that gift of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Amen. 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 Yeah, yeah. It's exactly right. Well, let's let's pray, and we will take a short break before our time of worship. <clears throat> our holy, our majestic, and simple God, we thank you for the, the kindness that you have shown to us. Uh, we pray, uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be a help to us even, even as we meditate and, and ruminate upon these things. I pray for the grace of understanding among your people. I, I pray that you will help me in, in times to come to speak more clearly uh, about these things as I ought to speak and that all of us will be granted the, the clarity and the power of your Spirit in order to understand them clearly as we ought to hear. Now we pray that the end of this would not be simply to, to fill our minds with complex terms or things that might impress one another, but that the end result would be a greater love and devotion and awe and reverence and worship of you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are worthy of our worship and our praise. You are worthy of our reverence and our awe. And we pray that you will enable us uh, to give to you what is rightly and justly due. Amen.